All right. Thank you so much. I might need to, is that, can everyone hear me? Does this work? All right. Well, good morning. Thanks for coming. Thanks to all the locals for showing up and all the people who traveled. Wow. Thanks for coming. Um, it's really fun to get to do this every year and get to meet some of you or see you again that we only see every so often. So it's fantastic. Welcome to Moscow. So I'm talking about mothering the mind, and as soon as I started trying to figure out what I would say, I was like, oh my word, there's way too much to say. So it might get a little fraught up here. Um, <laughs> so mothering the mind um, is such a huge topic, and I think um, I wanted to start by just talking about kind of the big picture stuff. Why does it matter? Does it matter? Why is it important? Those kinds of things. And then maybe dwindle off into practical application at the end um, that's a bit scattershot, just sort of things that I have thought of that kind of might be things I remember from how we were raised. It might be stuff that we've found just parenting ourselves or also the fact that I teach high school plays into it also. It's like I, I interact with high school kids every day and so I feel like I, I see the gamut of um, you know different all the different personalities and different kinds of families that, that come through. So anyway, the sort of big picture thing, mothering the mind, um, does it matter? Is it a big deal? And I think obviously it is. Hopefully I don't have to work too hard to make the case that it matters, you know, that your mind is an important part of you that we need to, you know, have in submission to God. We're told it's the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Um, I do think it's interesting, actually, that we always say those four things, heart, soul, mind, strength, and they go together. But it's actually interesting in Deuteronomy, where we're given the command, it's all your heart, all your, all, all your soul, all your strength. And then when Jesus repeats it in the New Testament, he replaces strength with mind. So all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. So usually we, we put all four together, right? We sort of combo Moses and Jesus and um, give all four in a row. Um, in Deuteronomy, it just says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And then when Jesus is asked, uh, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, Jesus is saying this is a big one. This is a big deal. The whole law, all the prophets, they all hinge on this. They can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And Moses says strength. And I think it's really interesting actually trying to figure out what does that mean exactly? How do we draw lines between those things? What, like how do you love them with your heart versus how do you love them with your mind versus how do you love them with your soul? And I am not pretending to know how the sort of Hebraic conception divided between heart and soul. I have no idea. There's probably interesting things there, but I don't know what they were thinking about when they, you know, gave us those categories. And um, <clears throat> I don't think it matters, actually. I think what he's saying is love the Lord your God with everything, right? The whole, the whole package has to love God with all of that. And so I'm going to be focusing on like what we see as uh, distinctions in the English, and I don't think that that really matters. We might draw the lines in slightly different places than the Hebrews would have thought of it, but I think the bigger point is it's 
all of you. It's everything about you. And so if we distinguish slightly differently, I think that's fine. I don't think it matters in the least. So um, this is a random illustration, but when we were living in England, I had this really sort of difficult relationship with the grocery store. And so I was always struggling to find the ingredients you know, wondering what this ingredient is, it, it was just a complicated time. But the meat really killed me. So I didn't recognize the shapes of the roasts, and then they would just say joint. And I'm like, but which one? And so and I was like, I don't really want to eat a joint. That's kind of gross. Seems like an elbow or something that you're serving up. And so once I realized, oh, that's what they say when they mean roast, then it made more sense. But I was trying to find a tri-tip roast and I couldn't find it and so I couldn't find anything shaped like that so I took a picture of the cow divided up into you know here's the tri-tip and I took it into the grocery store and he looked at it and goes I don't think we eat that in England <laughs> so you do eat it I know you eat it it's a good piece of meat I know you're not like throwing it out um, <clears throat> and so two grocery stores, they're like, we don't eat that in England. And then I took it to a butcher, like a proper butcher, and he was like, yeah, I don't think we eat that in England. So whatever. They don't have a tri-tip roast in England. But I know that they're eating it. It's just attached to a different piece that they call a joint, you know. So, so anyway, at the end of the day, like I know that they're eating, it's just that they carve it up differently. And I think that that's probably the case here where it's like, you could probably learn all kinds of interesting stuff about, you know, the soul versus the spirit versus the heart versus the mind, you know. And, and I think at the end of the day, we might draw the lines differently or we might emphasize different things, but I think we mean all of us. We're not throwing part of it away. I don't think we have to worry that we're forgetting part of it. Um, if we cover these. So just with that said, I'm thinking about the heart the way we in English use the word heart, soul the way we use the word soul, and so forth. And I think it's really interesting that um, <clears throat> they really stand or fall together. Like, you can distinguish between them, but you really can't separate them at all. If you try to separate them, um, they all crumble together. And since the sort of emphasis of the conference is keep your kids, like we don't want to be losing our kids, which is a very, very, very common problem in the Christian church. You know, so many kids grow up in Christian homes, they go to college and they lose their faith by the end of the freshman year. Like this is just a really common situation. Um, depending on what statistics you look at, it's like really dire. I think the Southern Baptists um, just talking about Southern Baptist children, I think it's in the 80% something, like have lost their faith by the end of their freshman year, not even just like end of college, but it's gone almost immediately. So this is a very real problem, and I feel like the Christian church has a bunch of holes in the bottom of the boat, and the water is coming in, and so we want to figure out how to guard our kids against that and how to teach them such that when they leave home or when they go to college or, you know, whatever, that they're equipped and that they aren't going to fall away as soon as they encounter resistance. And I think we can, we can say there's lots of different ways that that resistance can come in, and I think different people have different weaknesses. So I think, for instance, your heart, I think that there's a lot of kids who are led away by their affections, just by basic worldliness. Who do they love? What music do they love? What actors do they love? What parties do they love going to? You know, it's their affections that are pulled, and they might know all the answers. And, and as far as, like, you know, their intellect goes, they could tick all the boxes. They know the answers, but at the end of the day, they just really want to be over there. 
And so it's their heart that's pulled. And then often, every, I mean, everything else goes with it, right? Because as soon as one part crumbles, you, they're lost. Um, so it's a bit like trying to you know, guard something that has four gates. You know, if one goes down, the whole thing is conquered. And so the heart, I think, is often pulled away. And then the mind is used as the excuse. So I think frequently people will say, well, I just realized at college that there's just so many reasons why the Christian faith is not tenable and science and, you know, logic and reason and blah, blah, blah. What they really mean is I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and I'm getting drunk on the weekends, but that's not a really respectable thing to say as far as like why I, why I walked away from the faith. They want to say, well, I was just intellectually convinced that this is not tenable. And that is a helpful alibi for people when it was their heart that was actually pulled away. And then, oh, suddenly now they're convinced by the ethics prof, right? And so it really wasn't those arguments maybe that did the damage. It was the lifestyle, but then everything else kind of comes along with it, right? So I think there's ways your heart can be tugged away. Um, Strength, I think, is a really interesting one because you can have kids that are checked out, pious, they know the answers, but they do not have the courage to be the only one in the room who thinks that, right? And so if they can't be courageous enough to believe things in front of other people, then they crumble. And it might not be their heart or their mind that went first. It's their strength. Like, it's just a failure of nerve and a failure of courage. And that's the thing that ends up getting them in the end. Um, I think the soul, I mean, I think of that as kind of basic piety, you know, basic Christian disciplines, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, Lord's Supper, confessing your sins, those kinds of things. You, If you let that go, if you let that trail off, then again, it doesn't matter if you can answer the questions right on the test, everything crumbles. So I think that, um, like I said, I think these things stand or fall together. And similarly, I think that if you're strengthening one area, you actually are helping to strengthen all of the areas. So even though they're distinct, I think that they are really, really tightly connected. It's impossible to have a quarter of you that you know, is in submission to God, like truly in submission to God and three quarters of you that isn't, it, it just doesn't work that way. So we're kind of one complete package. But again, we can, we can point to different parts of us, different emphases. And the mind, I do think some people really are um, led astray by intellectual arguments. I think that can happen. I think more often than not, it's used as an alibi when the problem is elsewhere because it seems like more respectable and legit to be convinced by those arguments. But it is true that sometimes you can have kids who were raised in a Christian home but never given any reasons for it whatsoever. Like they just have never been taught why any of this is true and they kind of believe it until they go out and then they hear all the reasons for the other side. And if they've never been given any reasons you know, for their faith, then the obvious conclusion is, well, the faith is not a reasonable position and they are genuinely intellectually convinced of something else. And it might be first a problem in the mind. Like they just don't, they, they didn't know that there are answers to these questions. Like they've never been given a defense. And so then when it's attacked, they just don't have anything to answer with. <clears throat> so that's the piece that I kind of wanted to talk about more. But I do think it's important to see that they're all sort of stuck together. You can't really get rid of part of it. 
Um, so as far as talking about the mind and, and what do you do to make sure that your child has it squared away, right? That their mind is there. I think there's lots of, as far as strength goes, I think that's an interesting one because you could have a kid who's just naturally outgoing, naturally controversial, naturally, you know, contramundum all the time. Um, and you don't really have to work on that with your kid. And strengthening that doesn't necessarily strengthen their piety. But I do think that the mind is one of those ones that does have implications elsewhere, right? If you really work on this, I think you actually end up strengthening the other places as well. <clears throat> so um, what do you do with your child to make sure that they have um, a solid defense in, in their mind? And I think, I mean, the obvious thing is give them the best education that you can. I mean, that's sort of the immediate implication is the very best one that you can. This is not a place to cut corners, right? It's kind of a big deal that they, that they um, love God with all of their mind. And the thing is, is I, we're so screwed up as a culture about education. And what does it mean to have an education? What is a good education and what's it there for? So when I say give them the best education you can, I don't mean like get them into the most elite prep school that you can find and fast track them to the Ivy League because, I mean, well, in many ways, you'll just destroy them. Um, that's not what I mean by give them the best education you can. I think it has to be thoroughgoing in its Christianity. Like, it's not enough to just have it be a really good STEM program. Like, it has to be Christian. Like, it has to be, the faith has to be pervasive through all of it. It's not enough to just tag on a little bit of Bible study at the end. Um, you know, give them basically a neutral secular education and then throw on some Bible verses. That, that isn't gonna work. It has to be the best education you can from a Christian uh, perspective. I don't think that part is, is really optional at all. And that could be like a whole separate talk by itself. Why does it have to be Christian? Um, the point of education, I think, for Christians, really, if we're thinking about to love God with all of your mind, that then the point of education is to give our children that, um, then what we're trying to do is we want to teach them to know God and to obey him, right? That is, that is what a good education does, and it does it in all areas of life. So what does it mean to really know God, and what does it mean to obey God, and how do we do that in every aspect of life? Um, if we get it wrong at the front end, what is an education for and what is a good education, then I think every step after that is going to be completely goofed up. It's like doing the very first step of a math problem wrong, where nothing after that is going to work. <clears throat> so um, the ramifications are really big as to what you think an education is for. And most people and lots of Christians think it's so you can get a job. Right? That's the obvious point, is you go to school so you can get a job, and so whatever job you want, you're going to get the education that matches that. And I think right there, if that's how you think of education, you're all, like every subsequent step is, is goofed up after that. You want to make your child an obedient follower of Christ for all of his days. That's the point of education. It's not to get a job. And sure, jobs are important and all of that, but that's not the final goal. It is one of the results of an education, but it isn't the point of the education. And I think if we're thinking of it that way, there's some really bad um, problems that can happen down the road. One of those being girls. Like, if the only point is to get a job, 
this is how we end up with conservatives who want to preserve gender roles and they want to have mothers and homemakers. So it's like, well, she doesn't need one, right? Because she's not going to get a job, so why does it matter? Or we'll just give her a basic one so that later if she ends up a widow or something, she's employable, right? And so if that's how you're thinking of an education is just for the job market, it does a lot of damage, I think, more in, for women. In, and you see this in the conservative camp where it's like, well, my daughters are just going to get married and have babies, so they don't need science or whatever. You know? and, and I've met people like this where why would they need math? Like she's just going to have babies, so you know, it's not like she's going to become a CPA or something. Um, and so I really think that if you're thinking about it purely for job marketability, then the obvious problem is going to be with your daughters. Do they need an education? But the thing is, the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is not just for the men. It's for the women as well, which means there's something beyond the job market that is the reason for this, that you're supposed to be educating your girls as well as your sons. Um, it is the greatest commandment, according to Jesus. This is not a little tangential one that may or may not matter. It's a big deal. So I think, obviously, we're obligated to give this to our daughters as well as our sons. And if we're thinking that the only reason is so they're employable, then it does raise an obvious question, unless we want to just chuck it and say, whatever, the feminists are probably right anyways, and let's just all gallop off into the workforce. You know, and so I really think this is a very big question. And like I said, there's another talk that could happen over there. Um, but the ramifications are, are really big. I think an education is to, to create worshipers of God, obedient worshipers of God, and not a paycheck. And a paycheck is necessary, but it's not the ultimate point of life, right? And if it was the ultimate point of life, well, that's really a drag. Because, I mean, it's like you get paid so that you can eat so that you can go to work, so that you can get paid again, so that you can eat, so that you can go to work. I mean, it's just like, that's a really sort of <laughs> pointless existence, really. And if it's like, no, 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 it's to eat so that you can save money so you can go on really good vacations, that's the point. <laughs> or so that you can have a really solid retirement. I mean, it's like these are all really petty petty things to live for. There are so many more important things. You're trying to create worshipers of God who obey God, who know him, and who are going to serve him and take dominion of this place, right? Not just little cogs for the machine. Um, <clears throat> on the subject of girls, though, I do think that this is a really tangled mess um, because you have a lot of conservatives who really don't see the point of educating their daughters because... They're thinking of it just in terms of paycheck. And then um, I think you also have sort of problems on the other side where it's like we react against that. And it's like, no, 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 girls need an education too. It's important to give them an education. And then we give them like an identical one with the boys. And then we expect them to understand how to translate that later. And that's actually really complicated because even though I don't think a job is the, is the goal of education, it's obviously very much connected to it. It's not like this is an irrelevant subject, what you're going to do and how you're gonna, uh, what you're going to pursue. And so for boys, that connection is actually pretty linear and direct, right? If they're going to go out and pursue a career, it's just really obvious. But then you give girls like this fantastic education, but then they're, 
I've seen a lot of girls who are sort of like, but what's it for? You know, like, am I supposed to go get a job? Am I not supposed? Like, I don't know what to do. And if they're if they're single, then they're in that moment of like, okay, well, obviously it's fine to get a job, but is it exactly the same as a guy? You know, like, and I feel like a lot of girls are in this kind of tangle, and it's it's as if we're teaching the guys and girls to dance, and we want them to be doing the same dance, but we're only going to teach them the boys' steps. And then we assume that the girls will be able to reverse it and do it backwards. And actually that some girls can, like some girls can figure that out by themselves, but that's actually, a, it's like an additional step. It's kind of complicated. Like, what are you supposed to do with your education? What is it for? If it's not for a job, what is it for? And I really think that that's something where um, particularly Christians who are committed to giving their daughters a good education need to think about that a little bit more specifically and give their girls help there. Like, we want you to be educated. We want you to know God thoroughly with all of your mind. But we also want you to be a woman, and that's not the same thing as a man. And in this moment in our culture, that is apparently a hard distinction for people. And so they're not going to be getting any help from the world on this question. Like, in fact, they're going to be getting a whole lot of propaganda, a whole lot of um, pushback. And so I just think it really would be good for Christians to think a little bit more carefully about like, okay, I want to give my girls a phenomenal education and I want to help them figure out what they're supposed to do with it, right? Because it can feel like, what was that about? You know, <laughs> so now I know all that stuff, but what's it for? And again, and there's another talk. Um, <laughs> so um, in my experience, I do think Christian girls can become very confused about what they're supposed to be doing with their lives and how this is all supposed to fit together. Um, and I think it's a sort of a straight shot for boys, and the girls just might need a little bit more help there sometimes. Um, and I think we should be paying far more attention to gender roles right now than we are because this is, it's basically, that's a fallen city, sort of. Like, the, the secular establishment has taken that over, and I think we need to take, I think we need to take it back. Um, the second thing about this that I think, um, aside from the girl question, um, but is very connected to give your kids the very best education that you can give them, is don't confuse an education with their grades. And, I think this can happen, again, if you're thinking of it in terms of, well, they have to get this GPA so they can get into that college, so they can be eligible for that job, and then they can, you know, like you're looking at the, the track, and you think the grades are the point, and they so are not the point. And speaking as a teacher, I have seen many four-point students who tick every box, and they know every answer, and they actually have no idea, right? It's, sometimes it's very hard to test those kinds of questions, like do they actually get it? Like do they, do they have the instincts they're supposed to have? Like a test can only do so much. You can only test a, a kind of surface level. And so don't confuse the GPA with an actual education because you should so much prefer your kid to get it and, and be a C student than to not get it and have a perfect GPA. And so I think there's a lot of, I mean, I teach at Logos School. It's a phenomenal school. It's, it's trying to do this, like give a thorough Christian worldview in every subject. As far as like schools go, I feel like my kids are very blessed to be in that one. And yet I've seen a number of kids 
who can go through every hoop and they can tick every box and they can get good grades and you're like, it's not really much I can do. You know, like there's at, at a certain level, if, if all they're doing is learning to say the right things, a teacher can't, a teacher can't go past that. That really is something that, I mean, ultimately only the Holy Spirit can do it, but the parents are the ones who are responsible for that piece. And so the teacher can teach the material, but it's, it's the parents, it's the mothers, they're the ones that have to work that thing into their soul, you know, and make sure that they really get it. And that to me is the biggest distinction between the kids who see it and the kids who don't see it is whether their parents are invested in them seeing it or not. Because, you know, they, they might think that they are, but they're not really pushing it into all the corners. Um, so the next thing is, I would also say, don't confuse an education with certification and ticking all the right boxes. So I've, I've met people who are like, well, I figured out this online college that I can go to and I can test out of all of these different things, which means I can graduate in two months. And the thing is, that's not an education. Like you've just figured out a weird shortcut and you have not changed yourself. <laughs> right? The point of education is the formation of the child and you just figuring out like weird little hacks to get through and come out the other side with a piece of paper. That's not the same thing as having been formed or shaped by this education. And so I'm not saying that that's wrong to do it. I'm just saying don't confuse those two things. An education is fundamentally quite different than having technically gotten all the credits that you needed to get in a certain subject. Um, so what does it look like then? If you're trying to give your kids an education, a good education, I think we really should go obviously to the verse in 2 Corinthians 10 about taking every thought captive. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So bringing every thought captive, every single thought we are supposed to bring captive to Christ. And if you go back through that and you look at the absolutely uh, military imagery through all of this, we've got, we do not war against the flesh, the weapons are not carnal, the warfare is not carnal, we're pulling down strongholds, we're casting down imaginations, we're bringing into captivity, and we're revenging all disobedience. So we've got war, warfare, weapons, pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations. This is a bit brutal, what we're supposed to do. Right? This is like a full throttle event trying to bring every thought captive. And it's easy to just say that like, oh yes, worldview, blah, bring every thought captive. But what does that actually mean? Like particularly in a military situation, what does it mean to like take all the captives, right? You're, you're rounding them up and you are beating them, subduing them, putting them in a cage, introducing them to their new master, you know, that kind of thing. This is not a a lovely tea party that's happening. If you think about taking captives, I mean, particularly in ancient warfare, like this is not a this is not a small kind of event, and we're supposed to do this with every single thought that we have. We're supposed to take every thought captive to Christ, and so it's not about trying to keep your kids isolated from all those bad ideas that they might encounter, right? It's about introducing them to them and then teaching them to beat them and ride them like a bull, right? 
Um, and you're supposed to be the boss of all these thoughts and then introduce them to Christ. This is your new master. Um, you have to switch sides now because we have beaten you and, <laughs> and taken you captive. So every single thought you're supposed to take captive. And that's a lot of things. That's not just whatever was on the math test and whatever thing they had to know about the Wars of the Roses and you know some other little tidbits about clouds. You know, this is not, <laughs> that's not taking every thought captive. <clears throat> we should be teaching our kids, how do you think like a Christian about? You know, fill in the blank, every single thought. About bikinis, what do we think about that? About the latest song that everybody's listening to? What do we think about dating? What do we think about whether or not it's okay to be an assassin? So you can tell I have a teenage son. Whether organ donation is ethical. Like, should you be an organ donor? What do you think? You know, figure that one out. Um, are tattoos lawful? Are Instagram selfies what wisdom looks like? Um, can women be cops? Is it okay to be a furry? Um, is marijuana lawful? Like, these are all questions that, like, your kids are going to have to think something about it, right? And they have to have some answer. You're supposed to teach them to take every single thought captive for Christ. And on each one of those kinds of questions, I think it's hugely important to show your work to your child. When you're giving them a rule, like, no, you may not wear a bikini, no, you may not date, or whatever it is, whatever your rule is, you have to be able to show your work because you are teaching them what it looks like to solve questions like that. So if you think about it like um, teaching math, for instance, like if you're a math teacher, you don't feel a burden to teach your students every single math problem they might ever encounter in their whole life, right? You teach them certain basic principles and certain processes, and if they nail those, then you're confident that when they're presented with a new math problem, they will be able to solve it because you've equipped them and you've given them the, the sort of strategies for how you approach it. So whenever you have something like this, like, you know, whatever, no, you can't smoke pot to your son. Not that they would ask you. Um, but if you're having this discussion, you know, show your work because there's going to be another question that he's going to have when he's living on his own or he's not checking in with you or he's an old man or whatever it is that he's going to have to be able to to do the work and so your job is to teach them how we go about answering those kinds of questions and so every time you do this yes there's the there's the particular question that you're involved with and that's sure that's important but I think far more important than that is you showing them how you got to that conclusion. And often we don't want to talk about that. We just want them to obey the rules. End of story. Don't ask. And the only thing you're teaching them there is just wait until I'm not the boss anymore and then you can make arbitrary decisions just like I am. Right? So in the, if you're an arbitrary sort of a mother and the rules appear to be arbitrary, then what you're teaching them is not the rules. You're teaching them that rules are arbitrary and you can just decide and then make flat statements to people about it. Um, so if I, those list of questions that I just walked through, let me show you how I think this happens. So let's say um, there's the can I wear a bikini question. Um, so let's say you say, you're the mother and you're like, yes, that's fine. You may wear a bikini. The Bible doesn't say anything about bikinis. You can check a concordance. It's not in there. Um, Christians tend to be really legalistic 
about these kinds of things, which is, well, true. Um, we have Christian liberty. That's also true. Um, modesty is really a heart condition. Uh, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Um, if your heart is pure, go for it. You can wear a bikini. That's fine. So let's say that that's how you, that's the math, right? And set aside the conclusion because that's not really the point. If that's what you have done to like show your work, like this is how we approach those questions is ta-da. Um, you have to know that there's going to be a different question they have and you want to make sure that the math that you showed them how to do doesn't lead them into really terrible other places, right? Because you want it to be well-reasoned and connected to scripture and unpacking scripture faithfully. So let's say that um, now you're talking about is it lawful to be a furry? Do we know what furries are? It's very disturbing, guys. So it's a whole subgenre of, you know, people who dress like animal, well, they like wear animal suits, you know, it's kind of a weird fetish that they get into, go to conventions. Sometimes they just wear tails or ears and they have like a little persona, like I think of myself as a wolf or I think of myself as a My Little Pony or I think of myself as Pokemon. It's really disturbed and not at all cool. There was a poor sad girl on our block who was doing this and you've never seen such a sad little muffin like wandering around with a tail and these little ears and it was not good. So anyway, um, let's say that now you're trying to figure that one out. Oh, and lest you think it's an innocent undertaking, it isn't. It's, it's real twisted and weird. So the furry community, I even Googled this to find out, uh, which I wouldn't recommend. Um, <laughs> It's like they are, they are sort of far more than average uh, any other section of humanity. They're likely to be bi, trans, or gay. They are obviously all left-leaning. They tend to be atheists, although a quarter of them are Christians, or they identify as Christians. But it's a super weird sexually deviant thing. And 23 or something percent of them identify as Christians. Is that all right? Is it okay to pretend to be my little ponies on the weekends? Hmm. You know, like, and let's say you're trying to walk your kid through that. It's like, okay, well, let's go back over the work that we just did on the bikini question. And again, set aside the conclusion, but just walk through. The, the Bible never says anything about bikinis. Also, the Bible never says anything about furries. So look it up in the concordance. It's not there. If God had cared about it, he probably would have written it, right? Um... Christians do tend to be legalists about things like that. Yeah, Christians do. They tend to be legalists about that. Uh, we have Christian liberty. We have Christian liberty. Uh, man looks on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance. Um, if your heart is pure, you can wear a bikini. If your heart is pure, why should you not pretend to be a My Little Pony? You know, like, the thing is, you don't want to do any problem that leads you to a conclusion that if you were to simply swap out what we're talking about, you would be very unhappy with the conclusion, right? If you do that, it shows you something's wrong with your math somewhere. So let's say that on the bikini question again, you say, no, you may not wear a bikini because Christians in this church don't seem to do that, and I don't want you to stand out. Then totally aside from what you think about the bikinis, what have you just done is you've just taught your daughter that if you find a group of people where that's fine, then it's fine, because I just don't want you to stand out. Like, that's the, that's the rule here, which go find a nice little furry convention, and you won't stand out at all. It'll be great. Um, 
So you don't want your math that you show, like here's my work that I'm showing you, is we just don't want to rock the boat and these Christians don't seem to like it. So we're going to just do that, right? That's a horrible reason. Even if at the end of the day you come out with the right answer, like, no, you can't smoke pot. Like, let's say you've come to the right conclusion, but you, your reason is because I don't think the church people would be very excited. Well, that's a terrible reason. It doesn't matter if you have the right conclusion. You've just taught your child that that's how we, that's how we go about doing these things, right? And so when you are engaging with your child on any one of these questions, you have to anchor it to scripture. You have to unpack it faithfully from scripture. And you have to be able to show your work such that if they plug in something else, it will still be a faithful answer at the end of the day. And lots of times we have the right rules with all the wrong reasons. And so the kids go out and that's really the part that they hang on to is the wrong reasons. Or we have, well, just a big mess of bad reasons and bad conclusions that happens too. Um, so basically when you're engaging with your child on any of these questions, like take every thought captive, like every single one, you wanna be talking to them about it. Like, why do we think this? Why do we think the other thing? What does God say about fill in the blank? And most of those questions, you can't do a word study in the Greek and come up with an answer, right? Marijuana's not in there and neither are women cops. But you just have to, you have to be able to know, know the scriptures first off and then be able to unpack them and show how everything applies and how there's implications about every facet of life. There's nowhere that you can go in life and have it just be, oh, actually, that one's just totally neutral, right? You have to be able to show your work thoroughly on everything. Now, also, part of this is understanding weightier matters of the law and less weighty matters of the law. Um, but as far as practical sort of application goes, I think answering the question why to your children is so huge. It is huge when they're little and it's huge all the way through. And I think especially when they're little, if you have little kids and they ask why, 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 all the day long and you just wanna say just because I said stop asking, right? I don't mean arguing. I don't mean I want you to go to bed now and they say why, I mean that's just disrespect and so I, I don't mean those kinds of why questions but little kids are so eager to know why on everything why are plants green or why did God do that I really think in Dorothy Sayers trivium you know with classical education I feel like she missed a very important one in the preschool age that is the philosophical stage it's like wow my kids would ask me like the most unbelievable questions and then you're trying to answer it like a four-year-old level so it's really hard I mean I remember my son being like but why did God harden Pharaoh's heart that doesn't seem fair I was like whoa <laughs> and so now I have to try and like go through predestination but with a four-year-old in a way that they're going to understand and that's a really complicated situation but teaching high school kids there are a number of kids that I'm trying to get them to ask why again. Like I'm trying to reinstill the habit of asking why. If they go off to a secular university and they're sitting there in a classroom and the professor says, and anyways, all of morality is completely subjective, I want them to not just go, oh really, okay, and write it down. I want them to say, why? You know, can you show your work on that? And you wanna be the kind of mother 
that does that for them and that encourages them to look for those answers and check the footnotes. And can you explain that again? And it means explaining it and then explaining it and then explaining it and then explaining it again sometimes. And um, so I think, especially with little kids, don't, don't shut them down for it. And again, it's not, I, I'm not talking about being disrespectful or arguing, that's, that's a completely, different category, but honest questions. I just want to know about life. I want to know, is that okay, what that character did in that cartoon that I'm explaining to you at very great length, and you're only listening with half of your brain, and like, I don't know, you know. And so if you have like a junior high boy who's like, would it be okay to assassinate? You know, you don't want to be the person who's like, I, I don't know, just learn your just war theory from the next Marvel movie. Um, <laughs> You know, because I'm sure Hollywood's got that sorted. Figure it out there. Like, you need to be the kind of mother that's like, I'm not particularly interested in assassins, and yet this is a really good question, and let's figure this out. Is it okay to be an assassin? Is that lawful? Well, that's a complicated question. And so, like, you actually need to engage with them and not just shove them off, because they're going to go figure out what they think about it somewhere or other. And it would be really preferable if it was you teaching them how to take every thought captive instead of just assuming that somebody somewhere will be interested and their other junior high boy friends will solve it with them. <clears throat> so I think um, that's one of the big things is, is answer the question why and do it all the time. And don't let them ask why in disrespectful ways when they're challenging your authority about something. But honest questions, if they're interested, you should be interested. And if you have no idea and you're not particularly interested, get interested and then help them figure it out. And it might be like, that is a really great question. I have no idea. Let's ask your dad at dinner tonight. You know, that's a good answer. Or, I don't know, let's ask the pastor on Sunday and figure this out. Whatever it is, like help them to figure it out because if they have the question, you're the mother, help them find an answer to this thing that, that they're interested in. <clears throat> Another, this is unrelated, but teaching your children to be able to disagree or have their own opinions and engage at that level is so fantastic. Like learning to be able to have rowdy discussions around the dinner table about something is really, really important if you're teaching them to keep their emotions out of it, right? Because that is something, that is like a skill that the whole world has lost, like all in unison. and. So now it's like if somebody disagrees with me, like let's say I, you know, implied one ought not to wear bikinis. If people are like, so you're saying I'm going to hell then? Is that what you're saying? You know, <laughs> that's not a good way of interacting. It's like, okay, well, let's figure this out. I happen to disagree. Here's my reasons. Let's go to the scripture. What do you think? All right, let's unpack this. And let's do it without like accusing the other person of having excommunicated you. And, and it's like, whizzing up into this like now I can't think like a rational person because you disagreed with me so now I'm gonna you know like get offended and cry and say you've hurt me and then also call you lots of names so um, that is a it's a lost skill but it's hugely important like you need to really um, <clears throat> you need to prioritize independence of thought in your house like you should be really proud of them when they are showing that kind of thing, but then teaching them to engage and be able to change their mind and be able to listen to reason and be able to say, yeah, okay, all right, I see that now. Like, but also to be able to do it without getting all like whipped up and angry at people 
it's really, really important because as soon as you get mad, then you've lost all ability to hear reason after that. And so if you allow your children to just get mad really quick in disagreements, you're basically guaranteeing that they'll be stunted intellectually. And so you really don't want to do that. Like, don't allow them to get emotional over an intellectual discussion. So, you know, and sometimes that takes more hand-holding for some people than it does for others. But I think that, like, as mothers, that's a hugely important skill that you'd be imparting to your children. So prioritizing the independence of thought means allowing it to happen and being proud of them when it happens and encouraging them and not shutting them down and saying, you know, stop talking now. I've made my decision. Um, don't stuff it underground. Like, you really want to keep the windows open in sort of the discussions around your house. Like, you want them to be able to talk about things. You want them to be able to talk about it vigorously around the table. You want them having these discussions with you because otherwise their mind is going to be formed somewhere. And you really want it to be um, out in the open where you can engage with it. <clears throat> Last couple things. Um, I would say that in it's ideal. It's not always possible. But it's really ideal to talk about these things when they're hypothetical, right? Like having the discussions just about hypothetical situations is so healthy because if you, like, let's say you're like, no, we don't do slumber parties, for instance, but you're doing it when they have the invitation in their hand, that's a more complicated thing. And sometimes it's just what happens. Like, you know, something gets thrown at you, you never thought about it, you have to make a call, and you're walking your kid through it at that time. But it's so much better if they have thought through it, and they've talked about it, and they've engaged with it, and you've discussed it when it wasn't a pressing issue right now, right? It would be much better if they know what you guys think about dating before, like, she really, really wants to go out with him, and he's out there in front of the house. Um, that's not the best time to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> so discussing these kinds of things when they're hypothetical, and I think a really good springboard for those kinds of things is stories, movies or books or whatever. Like just asking the hypothetical questions about that means that like they're engaged in it and they care about it, but it's not like quite as much as if it was really happening to them. Um, so basically show them how to do the math and then you don't have to worry that you've covered every single question that may ever arise in their entire life and you've made flashcards so that they know, you know, when this situation comes up later. It's just really important that you walk them through it so that they're learning now how you go about approaching the question. Does God care about it? If so, he's put something in scripture about it and we're going to go to scripture and we're going to, you know, work our way to the answer. So basically, I would say, if you don't know the answer, show them how to figure out the answer. And if you're not interested, be interested. <laughs> and it's like, you are their mother after all. So this kind of comes with the territory. If they're really obsessed with something, help them see it the way they're supposed to see it, instead of just being like, I'm so bored. I don't want to talk about just war theory anymore. It's like, well, too bad. <laughs> you're the mom. Talk about it. Figure it out or point them in the right direction and help them to get the answers to their questions. So again, it's a little bit scattershot and I am out of time, so I will stop talking. Thank you.